Listen up or run for cover. Dropping knowledge from the people who have it to the people who need it. The, the, the real Bradley Bombs is dropping. What it is, Brad Lee, back again with another episode of Dropping Bombs. Today in the studio, folks, do I got a real treat for you. As you know, I'm famous for bringing you the treats, and today is no different. I've got Brent Gleason, who's the founder and CEO of Taking Point. He's also the best-selling author of the book, Taking Point. He's also a former Navy SEAL who basically leveraged what he learned as a SEAL into business and started kicking so much ass, everybody started asking him how to kick that much ass. So then he started basically consulting other people how to kick ass. I assume using the fundamental techniques and things learned, the disciplines of being a Navy SEAL. And now he's here to drop bombs on your ass. Welcome, Brent. How's it going, brother? Good to be here. Dude, I'm glad you're here, man. I tell you, I was surprised that, that, that you, you had time to do this only because where do you live? <laughs> Rancher Santa Fe. Yeah. Um, oh, I thought I thought you were still. I thought you were in Miami, bro. No, no. <laughs> oh well, now you got a little time in Rancho Santa Fe. That's where we last saw each other. <laughs> so what's happening? Everything's good, brother. Just uh, doing some pivoting on the business battlefield, but uh, otherwise, pretty much crushing it and um, really um, setting uh, the business and, and family up for some good things to come over the next few months. Hey, just just before anybody gets too deep into this episode, make sure that you guys go pre-order his book, Embrace the Suck, which releases December 22nd. If everybody on the bomb squad goes and gets this book, you're going to help them shoot up the ranks as a bestseller. Not only that, then end up on all these lists and sell him even a ton more books. So there you go. If you're in the bomb squad, <laughs> and I'm talking about a real bomb squad member, do me a favor, go get his book. So Brent, let me ask you, do you basically, you know, learned everything as a Navy SEAL and then started applying it into business? What are some of the things that, that like everyone in the world should do that, you know, is very rare to see like sure. obvious common sense, but no one does it. Sure. Uh, you know, a uh, quick bit of backstory there to kind of, you know, build momentum on the conversation is, you know, I initially had not had a lifelong vision of becoming a SEAL or, or really even military service. One of my buddies from, from undergrad uh, actually <laughs> kind of talked me into the idea. So uh, I followed him on that journey after working in finance for a year uh, there in downtown Dallas and uh, went through Bud's class 235, uh, 9-11 kicked off right in the beginning of uh, the advanced portion of that pipeline which obviously uh, had a significant uh, transformative effect on uh, the, the special operations community, the military in general, and uh, everybody who has served and is serving. Um, so a bit of a, a culture shift within the organization, also a mindset shift uh, from going from peacetime SEALs to wartime SEALs very quickly. Um, did several combat deployments, uh, had not planned on doing it as a career, uh, obviously, uh, had some, uh, very interesting experiences, uh, you know, in, in combat, obviously in training, um, stuck to the plan, transitioned out, went to graduate school and have since, uh, built uh, a series of businesses, uh, built and sold two companies, uh, more on the technology space. Um, but what I really found wasn't necessarily a passion for the industries those businesses were in, but a passion for many of the the leadership and culture principles of high-performing teams uh, that you experience in a community such as Naval Special Warfare, applying that in combat, and then taking many of those disciplines, principles, mindsets, and behavioral norms into building high performance in the world of business. Uh, so basically, you know, reestablishing better people practices, designing an organization's culture that is meant to achieve a specific desired outcome, um, understanding how accountability uh, and trust uh, impact an organization's growth and profitability uh, as the two most important culture pillars of any high performing organization uh, that applies in special operations, it applies in business. Um, but the interesting thing about the world of business and entrepreneurship, as you know, is all these uh, leadership and behavioral fundamentals are 
have a direct and measurable impact on the growth of an organization. So it's many of those things. I know we'll get into some of them, but to many of the those fundamentals around personal discipline, around mindset, around accountability, both at the individual and team level, and the philosophy of leadership at all levels. So leadership as a behavioral expectation of yourself and others, um, regardless of rank or tenure. Uh, the Naval, Naval Special Warfare community is a very flat organization uh, where we decentralize decision making and uh, not as easy to replicate uh, in an impactful way in the civilian world, but because uh, there has to be frameworks and, and a culture that allows for uh, more autonomy and decision making. But those are just some of the fundamentals that uh, have seemed to apply. Obviously, they don't apply directly in the civilian workforce and some of the younger generations. We have to, as leaders, understand, you know, what really motivates uh, every single individual. And now, of course, with 2020, uh, there's new layers of complexity <laughs> as it relates to leading and managing remote teams and understanding, you know, how to even apply, you know, emotional intelligence and empathy in getting as much as we can from our people. Well, I can tell you, you just said a mouthful. Now, <laughs> now leadership as a word in, in today's day and age could mean anything. What's, and a lot of people, you know, hear this word leadership, right. you know, but when you like, for example, if I said, I'm going to train my team on sales, I should expect to get a 20% return on, on my investment by simply improving sales, at least temporarily, uh, by investing in that, in that individual or that knowledge. Now, leadership, I think, okay, well, that would go to the executives. That would go to the management. It wouldn't just go to everybody. But I believe that technically, if you're leading anybody, even your family, you're technically a leader. So is that right. the people that need leadership training? Right. We, we all have the opportunity to lead in, in all aspects of our life. Uh, from the time we're young, you know, to the time this short life ends, uh, whether that be in your work, your career, to your point, your family, uh, as a parent, as a spouse, uh, as a mentor to others uh, in business or even in you know, philanthropy and nonprofit opportunities. Um, it really comes down to uh, having a passion and an emotional connection to a vision of what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, if you can authentically embody that yourself first, then you have the opportunity to be able to uh, effectively communicate what that vision is, what the goal is, uh, and in a best case scenario, provide certain you know frameworks and parameters of how to get there, but then allow that team uh, to innovate and to execute uh, and to course correct as needed to achieve that goal because that, that accomplishes buy-in. It accomplishes, um, uh, gives them the opportunity to be passionate about that goal as well. Um, and not everything we do in business is you know sexy and, and, and things that we're always going to be uh, motivated to get behind. But as a leader, it's our job to communicate a vision effectively, uh, to build a team culture, uh, that is designed to achieve uh, a desired result, uh, be it business result, sales result, profit goal, uh, what have you. That's where oftentimes, you know, leaders in, in business, we, even the most well-intentioned leaders oftentimes do many of those activities in silos. We know we have to, you know, create a great culture. We'll get into that in a minute because that, again, that too could mean a lot of different things. Uh, we have to be an effective leader. You know, there's two types of leaders. You're either effective or ineffective. You're either helping the team uh, achieve a specific goal and desired outcome, uh, or you're falling short. Um, and you know, the, the best leaders I know are also lifelong learners. They're never satisfied with the status quo. They're always looking to reinvent themselves. And therefore they have a certain mindset and level of discipline that's infectious, uh, to others. Um, and, and you know, so leadership is very much behavioral. It's less about what we say, but more about what we do. Do you think, do you think you can be friends with, with a perfect running team and a perfect running culture? Yeah, I definitely think that there is uh, a need for, um, you know, camaraderie and friendship within teams. I mean, if you look at, you know, certain like engagement surveys that we work with our clients on to understand what their level of engagement of their employees are, one of those questions is, you know, do you have someone you would consider to be a close friend at work? Uh, that's not my favorite question. I usually toss that one out. <laughs> but, well, the, re the reason uh, why, the reason why yeah. is because like, dude, sometimes to hold people accountable, which I think is required in a, in a good culture, right? You, yeah. you want accountability, you want boundaries, you want, you want opposition. And, 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 you know, most times I find whenever I'm building a team, if I get to be too friendly, you know, like we're, we're hanging out now, we're buddies, well, then it's harder to, to be, you know, more strict and or, you know, hold people accountable because they're your buddy now. Right. 
And a lot of people that are out there building businesses, they end up bringing in their buddies. They end up bringing in their friends. They end up bringing in their, their, their family members. And then their culture sucks because of that yeah. closeness. Like, in other words, dude, we're buddies. You're not going to hold me accountable. That's what right. I mean. So you think, yeah. you think friendship, like technically in a perfect running team should be to the side there's a, there's, I mean, you said it well, there's a, there's a fine line there. There's a, there's some barriers that should not be crossed. Uh, obviously take it back to, you know, the SEAL teams, for example, you are friends with, with those guys, you're living together, you're fighting together, you're going through some of the most brutal military training known to man. Obviously that's going to create a bond. Now, you know, yeah, out but here, a, but that's, but that's a lifestyle. That's different. That's, different. that's, that's exactly, a lifestyle. Exactly. Like that's, that's not necessarily a job. Like you could be friends yeah. <laughs> with the NBA team you're on. And or a Navy SEAL team. And I got more questions about being a Navy SEAL. Like when you went through BUDS training, dude, you know that that was hard as hell. Tell people a little bit about it in case they don't understand. Like that, they make you like shiver cold and, and lay in sand and like sure. they're there to mentally break you down. Are they not? Uh, they are. And I actually saw an interesting video uh, put out by, I think the NSW community. We're trying to uh, be more thoughtful in how we market and our talent acquisition strategies. And, you know, the video was talking about how, you know, the guys coming in these days, there's enough online resources and mentorship programs and strength training programs. They come in fit, more fit than we've ever seen. You know, they can do all the running, the swimming, the push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, but it's not really about that. It never has really been about that. Sure, intellect and fitness are critical. And I'll talk to you a bit about my, my uh, preparation process going into this. Obviously, I did a lot of research as much as I could possibly find. I read all the books that I could find. Um, but one of the things that, um, you know, is sort of the bedrock of developing a growth mindset and resilience is to focus on what's in your immediate control just like achieving any goal or navigating adversity. And we oftentimes spend a lot of time, energy, and emotion <laughs> worrying about things that are outside of our control. So going into SEAL training, which again, arguably one of, if not the most challenging special operations training and selection pipeline known to man, obviously preparation was key. Uh, you can have a good plan, but preparation uh, is going to trump that every single time. So I've, I've, my process was to develop m mind and body as much as I possibly could to become as fit as I possibly could. I trained uh, with a buddy of mine from college for a year. Then I actually quit my job and he and I moved up to Crested Butte, Colorado, where we trained for another six months at high altitude uh, to get as fit as we possibly could, focusing you know, on what's in our control. <laughs> I wanted fitness to be the last possible thing I had to worry about. There are all these other external factors and internal factors and emotions. Yeah, like freezing your ass off. Yeah. And so, like, so how, the, like the how pipeline's many well over road? a year. Well, the pipeline's well over a year. Um, you start with BUDS. BUDS is the first six months of that long training pipeline. It's an acronym. stands for Basic Underwater Demolition Seal. Usually when you see, you know, videos or Discovery Channel documentaries, they're showing things from BUDS. Uh, BUDS is six months. It's three phases. First, second, and third phase. First phase uh, is, uh, they call it physical training, but it's really where you're getting your ass kicked <laughs> every single day. Uh, the, usually the fourth or fifth week, it changes every now and then, but the fourth or fifth week will be hell week. So you'll usually lose half your class just going into hell week. And I'll explain hell week in a second. Um, and then you'll lose most of the people that you're going to lose uh, or that will quit or get injured. You'll lose them during hell week. And you might have a few other injured guys roll into your class after hell week, but um, hell week is the brutal crucible that all seals share that very few students successfully navigate. Uh, it starts on a Sunday evening, ends on a Friday afternoon. Uh, you get about two hours of total sleep <laughs> the entire week. Uh, you run the equivalent of multiple marathons while wet and sandy, uh, swim dozens of miles in the open frigid ocean. I was a winter hell week. So the water temperatures were in the fifties. Um, and they basically keep you cold, wet and hypothermic, uh, the entire week. Um, you've got broken bones, fractures, flesh eating bacteria, joint injuries, overuse injuries. You're sick. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a good time, Brad. I, I makes COVID look like a walk in the park. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. But again, it's designed to, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful social experiment uh, to see what types of people go into it and the types of people that come out of it. And typically uh, that group of guys that you continue on with and graduate with are not initially what you would select. If you were to try to select uh, who, who are the guys that are going to make it in this group of 200 uh, that are beginning you would probably be wrong almost every single time uh, about who those people are. They're not the biggest, scariest looking dudes or the guys who act all tough and macho all the time, or even Olympic athletes necessarily. Uh, again, fitness is paramount uh, and, and mental toughness is paramount, but that comes over time as you go through these, um, <laughs> these experiences. But, um, 
It's, uh, you know, when we've invested millions of dollars and years in research trying to think about it from a, a sales funnel, so to speak, uh, we need to graduate more SEALs, right? Because we need more SEALs. Uh, we can't make the training easier. Uh, if anything, it's probably technically getting harder and harder over the years and more competitive. So we need to fill the top of the funnel with better leads, right? Therefore, that's one of the reasons we've been a little bit more uh, purposeful in lifting the veil of secrecy and allowing books and movies and more intentional talent acquisition strategies and marketing efforts and branding efforts. So, you know, the guys coming in know what they're getting into. And so we can open um, up the possibility to a wider array of people so they understand, you know, who our community is, what we're all about and what we do. Um, but, uh, you know, we still, you know, it's not the narrative. The research doesn't show the narrative you would imagine of star athletes and intellectual prowess and all those things. You, you get, you get that, but it's, it's passion. It's, it's grit. It's resilience. It's a deep, deep, deep desire to serve as a seal, not just serve in the military. That's it right there but to serve as a seal. That's yeah. it right there. That's it right there. I mean, you have to want to be a seal more than you want to deal with this nonsense. Right. Because it's ultimately a mindset. Like I imagine there may have been people in the past that couldn't physically keep up because they were just not conditioned. But I bet you there's buff ass some bitches come through there and they give up because they're like, dude, screw it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. <laughs> right. So like that mindset when applied to business is yep. the difference between a company staying in business and not staying in business. 100%. And think about, think about obviously 2020 is an easy example because we've had a lot of both businesses, large and small, uh, either suffer or fail uh, because oftentimes, and unfortunately, sometimes, as you know, this lack of passion, that lack of vision, it resides at the top <laughs> of the organization. So as you can imagine, uh, the detrimental effect that would have on, on, a, on a company, on a team where the people at the top or the, the most senior people, so to speak, are actually the ones who kind of lack the vision lack the, the true passion for what they're trying to accomplish. Therefore, there is no uh, infectious <laughs> emotional connection uh, if the people at the top do not feel that as well. And it's whether it's SEAL training, the, the ups and downs of the business battlefield and entrepreneurship, I've been through all of them. I made all the mistakes. Uh, it, it's, it's really having that, that um, really, really deep, deep desire to keep forging ahead, to adapt, to innovate, to find a new path and course correct. Um, and if you're not willing to do that, you, you ultimately won't be successful, whatever your definition of that is. Period. Now yeah. you, now you go through hell week, you eventually graduate. Everybody else gave up. There's a f fraction of the people that came in that actually graduate. Once you graduate, don't they like jam your, your <laughs> trident into your chest with some spikes? Technically, technically, Brad, that's not allowed anymore. But uh, yes, so they still the, do it, though. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> we so, we just do so, it. we do it behind closed doors. Yeah. So now, so now, boom! You're a badass. When do you start learning how to kill and all that? Is that in uh, uh, SEAL training? The the the, the learning how to freaking you know snipe out of you know helicopters and shit, or is that after? SEAL it's a good question because SEAL training has evolved immensely over the years. The training pipeline keeps getting a little bit longer and a little bit longer. Uh, we come in now very qualled up, a lot of qualifications. Uh, now they do free fall school and advanced training. You know, hell, I wouldn't be surprised if they offer sniper school <laughs> during advanced training before you become a SEAL and get your trident. Uh, because, you know, we've been at war for two decades. We have to have the guys be able to hit the ground running. And back in the day, you would just go through six months of buds getting your ass handed to you. And then you would learn how to be a SEAL once you got to 18. Uh, you learn, obviously, basics of shooting and land warfare and close quarters combat, but not like we do now. Um, but then, you know, people assume that, you know, SEALs are just downrange, kill an enemy all the time. We spend 70% of our time, 75% of our time training, 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 in a constant state of improvement and course correction, bringing lessons back from the battlefield and shifting how we do and the resources we invest in. And, uh, and then when we are in deployment, if you're not operating, eating or sleeping, you're also training, you're rehearsing missions, you're rehearsing close quarters combat skills, you're on the range, you're working out, you're constantly trying to improve both the individuals and the team. Um, and that's what, uh, that's what makes it a, a really interesting culture is because, you know, nobody's ever satisfied with where their certain level of skill is. So when you're in a platoon, uh, there's various uh, segments of that 18 months typically that, uh, 
that you'll you know be training in before you deploy for around six months. And that 18 months has you you go to professional development. So guys are going off to sniper school, language schools, everything from learning how to fix an outboard motor to you know driving schools and um, you know advanced breaching schools and explosive and demo schools. So not everybody in a platoon or a troop is going to have the exact same skill set. You're going to have your snipers who've gone to sniper school. You have your breachers who are your, you know, masters of explosives. Um, you know, your language experts. Which, and which, like that. which, which one within the SEAL groups does everyone knows the baddest some bitch walking? <laughs> Probably the one who's been in the longest and has been to all those schools. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you you, you learn the most uh, by the application of those skills in a real combat scenario, and. That's what we've been doing for a long, long time. And now, obviously, combat veterans are training our new SEALs. Whereas I went through, I was trained by you know peacetime SEALs. Still great training, but it's not the same uh, with what were the applications that we're bringing back from the battlefield to shift our tactics, our strategies, and how we train. Yeah, you seem like a very, very, very uh, learned SEAL. I, 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 I think I met him with yep. you. I met uh, old Ray. He was throwing salt in his eye with some lime, and I'm thinking, like, <laughs> like that's a, like to me, like that's a all out freaking. Ah, that's the dude you're gonna throw 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 into Iraq and say, go Ray. get him. I love now, right. If, He's awesome. If they called you, <laughs> hey Brent. If they called you right now and said, dude, we need to see, we need you to suit up, get some gear. We're sending you into Iraq, and we need <laughs> you to go in and, and rescue a freaking hostage. Are you still ready to rock and roll? I think I could pick up where I left off, Brad, but uh, that's not to say my back wouldn't hurt immediately and my wife would be pissed. <laughs> but I mean, you could, you could, you could immediately get on comms and start directing shit and go in there and tear shit up. Probably not to the same level of efficiency as these guys training day in and day out, you know, constantly as part of their career. But uh, and, and, you know, little nuances of tactics and things like that have evolved. But uh, I, yeah, you, you could definitely uh, having been that well trained for that long, you can definitely pick those things back up really quickly. Dude, when people think in Navy SEALs, they're thinking out of frick. They're, they're thinking automatically when you think Navy SEAL, you think, you know, knife, wetsuits, <laughs> machine guns, you know, covered faces and badass, you know, just kick ass freaking movie type shit. Is that how yeah. it is in real life or no? Not really. Uh, not really. I mean, and kind of going back to the training, it's interesting to see the guys who do uh, come through the pipeline. We have, you know, extremely highly educated people, uh, people from very diverse cultural backgrounds. I know you see SEALs, you're like, oh, they're a bunch of six foot tall white guys. <laughs> it's, a, it's actually a very diverse uh, group of individuals. we got guys coming from, you know, billionaire families from Texas and people who have uh, extremely high degrees of education. Here's an interesting data point. 75%, obviously in the military, you're enlisted and then you have your officers who've either gone to you know college or officer candidacy school, et cetera. 75% of our enlisted SEALs have at minimum an undergrad degree. Um, and it, because we're seeing the younger guys right out of high school uh, don't have a quite uh, a highest success rate. Uh, it's not quite old enough, not enough emotional maturity, not enough life experience in general to handle the stress and the anxiety. Uh, and therefore we get guys who've already been to college or like me, college and then working in corporate America and then going in. It's, it's actually really common these days. Um, and also guys just taking a longer time to prepare because they know it's necessary. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very interesting uh, group of people uh, from a diversity standpoint, but also, you know, a lot of highly educated individuals, but then again, yeah, you get your, you know, your, your badass knuckle dragon <laughs> tattoo covered uh, pipe hitters as well, or usually a blend thereof. <laughs> now, when you went in, you said nine one one just went down nine eleven. Yeah. Now on nine eleven. If you were already in, was there some sort of freaking killer patriotic freaking energy going on amongst the fellas or what? Oh, yeah. It, it, and again, that's not to sound, you know, macho or make light of, uh, you know, that horrible event. But it, yeah, the, the switch flipped. Uh, oh, so yeah, I, dude, I, I mean, I, even if you weren't in the military, Brent, yeah. like that, just oh, the yeah. whole world was patriotic. They felt yeah. like coming together and whooping some ass. Yeah, it, it, it really was an interesting transformation. I was, we had just finished buds. We had, I think like four or five days off between buds and starting advanced training, which is called SQT or seal qualification training, which is another you know, seven or eight months of where you're really, really learning uh, the tactics of naval special warfare. Uh, but between that week off, I was, I remember I was up at USC visiting uh, a friend of mine 
And that's, you know, that's when 9-11 occurred. Uh, so those few days, like two days right before my class started advanced training. And yeah, it, it you know, they didn't, uh, you know, we already had people downrange. Uh, we already have cycles. So it's not like we were getting, you know, beepers going off, getting recalled back to the command. But it definitely changed the entire mindset of everybody in the community, everybody in the military, everybody in the world um, as to, uh, you know, what, what our training meant now and, and, and knowing that we would be going down range to take the fight to the enemy and soon. Um, and then I went to SEAL Team 5, and actually our task unit from 5 was the very first task unit deployed into Iraq in April of 03, uh, soon after the, uh, the city fell of Baghdad. And so we were there, uh, troops, usually about 40 SEALs, uh, a lot of su support elements. We were there running what we call capture or kill missions. So basically hunting down guys on the deck of cards or blacklist, other various uh, insurgent faction leaders. Uh, the op tempo was super high, like no infrastructure whatsoever. We were living in bombed out palaces. <laughs> it was pretty well. Dude, see bombed out palaces. Now, if you came across a solid gold watch or something, were you allowed just to keep it as a spoils of war or would you get in trouble for that? First of all, that shit was long gone by the time we even got there. The army had rolled through there already. So uh, now every now and then you, you've, you know, we were we were living uh, on that deployment. We were living uh, at one of the palaces. Um, so it's a lot of mix of different, you know coalition forces and whatnot. We were living with uh, Polish special operators and worked a lot with them called the Polish Grom, uh, super badass warriors. But uh, yeah, you know, every now and then you, you come across stuff like that, but you are, you are not supposed to <laughs> partake now, in now, uh, the spoils now, of war. Now you said the army rolled through there before you guys. So, so when, when we go into a country, like, how does it happen? Does the Marines really go in first and, and then the army comes through and then the Navy and the air force clean up and, 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 and do the, you know, high level intelligent, you know, mission type shit, or how does it work? Yeah, it, it's, it's obviously a, an evolution. The way that that specifically went down uh, back in 03 was we had uh, uh, obviously bombs in the air uh, and we were going to you know, obviously you know, soften the, the areas of, of Baghdad with, you know. So that's Navy. Are those Navy fighter pilots or those are those uh, Air Force? Who's bombing? It, it can be a mix. It could be Air Force, uh, typically Army, Navy. Yeah. So when they say uh, Marines go in first, they don't go in first anymore, do they? I bet you we send in drones first, don't we? <laughs> uh, the advancements of technology. Um, we, yeah, I mean, we, we want to keep, obviously, uh, our even our best fighters out of harm's way as much as possible if we can lean on technology for that. But basically we had SEALs uh, securing the Afa Peninsula and the gas platforms. Um, not that anything had to do anything with oil, but we wanted to make sure that the oil platforms were secure. <laughs> so we had, we had the SEALs uh, doing that. Um, and then conventional forces from Afa Peninsula pushed north, uh, Army, Marines, and some SEALs how? rode with them to Baghdad. So. Dude, in your, in your opinion, how advanced is our shit? Like, is our military badass as everyone hopes it is or thinks it is? Or was it, did, did it get deteriorated in the last 10 years? Well, that's a, uh, that's a good question. Um, it, it, I guess there's, there's sort of two ways you could answer that. One, obviously there's been a, you know, a massive transformation and evolution and, you know, the culture and the technology and the, and the, the structure of not just the special operations community, but the military in general. That yeah, I think said, we're just, I think you know, I think we're just doing it smarter. That's all. Like drones are smarter than soldiers. Like not like physically, but like you send the drones in, and if those get dicked up, then send in the soldiers. Like to me now, soldiers are last resort. That's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's a it's a not to be cliche, but it's a smarter, not harder type of philosophy. Now, obviously, there are things we have to do if we're going into, you know, capture a bad guy or kill a bad guy, whatever. That will, you know. Uh, especially a, a capture mission where you're ideally wanting to take these guys alive so they can be interrogated. So you can gather more intelligence. Um, that requires boots on the ground. It requires, you know, seals, Delta operators, you know, tier one, you know, uh, special operations forces. Well, we hear of laser ability. Like I hear, Oh dude, the U S government's got the ability to literally shoot a laser out of the sky and blast your forehead wide open while you're sitting, <laughs> having dinner with freaking Saddam Hussein. Is that true? <laughs> 
I, I guess it depends on your pay grade. I'm sure we have far more advanced technology than I'm even aware of. Usually by the like, time people like us see it, it's already been around for 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Like dude, around here, they were saying storm area 51 and then, and they kept saying, well, they can't kill us all. And I'm thinking, yes, they can. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, they can. <laughs> oh yes, they can. And not only that, they will. I highly suggest you do not storm the area <laughs> because dude, I not think people underestimate the, the, the technology that we have access to. I mean, I think oh, yeah. there's, there's drones that are equipped with bombs that literally can be flown into a crowded mall onto somebody's particular forehead and pop their head. Oh yeah. We have, we have all types of stuff that, uh, you know, like I said, you know, by the time the general public is aware of it, it's been around for a long time and there's something way sexier and cooler out there. Now, did you, <laughs> Far did, more you advanced. did you ever have to go and actually pull triggers? Did you oh, get yeah. anybody, did you get any pink mist? Yep. Yeah. Is it red it's, mist uh, or pink mist? What What do they call it when they actually have to pop someone's head? <laughs> That's actually funny. I was texting with a buddy of mine yesterday, and I said something about red mist, and he replied pink mist, and I was like, "So I guess you could go either way." <laughs> For those of you listening who don't know what we're talking about, it's uh, uh, when you when someone takes around and there's you know a spray of blood uh, in the air. That's called pink mist or red mist. Now, see, I, I, I probably would have been an excellent sniper in the war because I, I feel like maybe it's too much Call of Duty, but I feel like if I'm over there on a building and I'm and I've got, you know, a, a town or I'm guarding some sort of, you know, uh, you know, troop down there doing something and I'm up there, you know, what's it called? Watchtower or something like that. Overwatch. Overwatch. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, if, I, if I'm providing, <laughs> if I'm providing cover overwatch, dude, I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's a little five-year-old boy walking towards you guys. If, if I know that we are in a hostile environment and I see a nun and a five-year-old boy walking towards my, my guys on the ground, yeah. I'm going to be on the, on the microphone quick. And if, and if, if anybody down there feels nervous or threatened, I'm going to pink mist them both. Yeah, well, it, 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 in all seriousness, that that has been that type of decision has plagued special operations since the beginning of special operations. <laughs> and I mean, going back hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, because um, because guess what? It's war, though. It's war, guys. Yeah. Just like in business, man. In business, sometimes you don't want to fire your friend. You don't want to get rid of your cousin. And at the end of the day, in me, in, I'm trying to make the alignment that if you're out there running a business and you're trying to create a culture and a team, which is required in, in the Navy SEALs, because otherwise people die, you go in there and you are a team of people. So how do you apply the Navy SEAL, you know, camaraderie, the Navy SEAL or, or any military operation or outfit, like any high, especially the elite fighting forces. But how do you get that camaraderie in a company where look, people will kill for you, you know, and if you don't do your job, you know, it's almost life or death. How do you apply that and get yeah. that culture going in your company? It's uh, one interesting way to look at it is, is kind of falls under um, uh, motivation theory. And there's been a lot of research shown that um, there, there's really three things that drive motivation in with employees in an organization um, and without understanding these and, and knowing how to apply them and apply them differently to different people. That's where we as leaders and managers fall short of keeping our team members engaged. Uh, so before I talk about the theory, you know, when I say engagement, obviously there's three types of team members in a, in a company, there's engaged. So those years, we would say those in, in the SEAL teams all in all the time, uh, they go above and beyond. Uh, they take on roles, responsibilities outside of their job description. Uh, and they really, really believe in the company's mission and what they're trying to accomplish. And they know intimately how their job function drives mission success. Just like I would know exactly how my job function as a SEAL drives mission success on the battlefield. Same thing has to apply within a high-performing business organization. Uh, and then the other two types of employees are disengaged. They're kind of in the middle. Uh, not necessarily bad, not necessarily good, kind of more of the bare minimum. Uh, they kind of sit back, wait and see. They collect a paycheck. They do their job, but they don't really go above and beyond. And then you have your actively disengaged. And we've all worked with these people. <laughs> these are the assholes who are actually working against the company uh, and the agitators and you know the people who create a toxic environment. And the challenge with those folks are... Oftentimes they have a voice because of tenure or subject matter expertise or all of the above. Um, but understanding within those three subsets of employees of the company, you know, there's three things that really motivate people. One is uh, autonomy. So we talked a little bit about that earlier, like the autonomy to make decisions, the autonomy to be creative and innovate as long as your activities and, and, and functions are aligned with 
what the organization is trying to accomplish. So autonomy, uh, autonomy and decision-making, autonomy and activity, and autonomy and the how uh, of achieving a specific goal, the execution of a specific project. That's why we as leaders need to kind of provide the, the, the goal <laughs> and the resources and then let them identify the how. The other one is um, mastery. So, and that's just in any walk of life. We just as people uh, are very satisfied by getting better at things, whether it's a sport, a hobby, business success, your relationship, um, basically anything uh, that we are passionate about or, or goals that we uh, attempt to pursue uh, that we believe in that align with our values, et cetera. We want, uh, we want to get better at stuff. That's why people play musical instruments. That's why uh, people focus on their fitness and continually improving their health or their strength. And, uh, and then the third piece, you have autonomy, mastery, and then purpose. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, Brad, is the guys who make it through SEAL training, they believe in the purpose. They are connected intimately to the purpose. They emotionally connect to it. Um, so understanding those three things, autonomy, mastery, and purpose, really gives us the opportunity to uh, create better engagement, create better performance. You know, we, we talk about, you know, the service profit chain. Well, what makes a business profitable? We'll ask our executives in our programs this, and you get all these different, all these different types of answers. Well, it, it kind of goes into succession. Well, profitability is the, the number one way you create profitability is by repeat customers. You know that more than anybody. <laughs> we were just talking about this before we started. Repeat business, repeat customers, reoccurring revenue streams. Well, you get repeat customers because of a high quality product or service, right? Well, how do you get a high quality product or service? You get a high quality product or service by highly engaged people doing awesome shit. Uh, they love what they do. They're really good at what they do. They believe in what they're making or creating for the customer. And you get that through great leadership. You get that through great engagement strategies and a great culture uh, for the organization. And that's, and that's why we oftentimes miss the mark and understand that culture, people practices, and those uh, behavioral developments 100% drive profitability. It's not just sales. It's not just operations or, or recapitalizing the business. It's the behavioral elements of an organization or what drives sustainability, growth, and profitability. Now, repeat customer services profitability. Give me the number. What would you say the second one was? So, uh, repeat customers is the, the number one. That's driver. the number one. Did you give yeah. me a number two or no? Yeah. Yeah. And then, well, and then next, it kind of goes into succession. So how do you get repeat customers? You get that obviously through a very, very high quality product and service. Yeah, kicking ass. Service. Yeah. You're kicking ass and you get oh. that by employees who are kicking ass. Got it. And, 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 yeah. and it's very interesting that you say there's three things that motivate people. First of all, the autonomy, the freedom, almost the responsibilities invigorating to some people. Right. You got the mastery, which is which is when you get really good at something, you feel better. You're motivated to kick some ass. Yep. And your purpose, which again, all point to the, that engaged type of employee or team yep. member. So yep. if I've got a team and I've got you know eighty percent engaged, twenty percent disengaged, I'm in good. I'm in decent shape, I bet. But if I've got twenty percent engaged and eighty percent disengaged, <laughs> and or the third one, bad apple, what'd you call them? Actively disengaged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you got, if you got 80% those, how do you fix that? And how dangerous is that? Well, you got to, I mean, you, you, it's interesting. You said, if you have 80% engagement, in your organization, you're killing it. You're crushing everybody. You're beating the competition. Uh, the norm, and this isn't just my opinion or experience. This is from data from Deloitte, McKinsey, et cetera, et cetera. The average and even a well-run organization is about 35% engagement. Uh, the bulk of the people being what you call the disengaged. They're kind of, you know, they're, they do okay, but they're not all in. Now, what if you could identify, what if you had a tool where you could um, And then they actually disengaged more typically than not have to be removed. Oh, you can. I mean, a lot of it's as simple as just survey mechanisms and other types of uh, interview processes to identify what level of engagement you have in an organization. Uh, we do a lot of engagement surveys um, and, uh, and you can quickly find out uh, what those levels of engagement are in any organization. Well, seeing how you have a virtual training system, by the way, if anyone's listening and you guys want to, you know, turn your company around, you know, I would call taking point number one, because you have consultation and you have all kinds of services. But one of the things you have is a VT. Now, the virtual training system obviously could put Brent Gleason on your staff 24-7, working with your leaders, et cetera, et cetera. But more importantly, Brent, what if I showed you how to use that VT to identify disengaged, actively right. disengaged employees at an organization. Would that have any value to your customers? Oh my God. Oh my God yeah. 
Okay, so immense, check this out. And, and, better, and better than just a survey, because, you know, surveys. No, 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 no. Watch this. You no, tell no, me no, if no. this is legit. Watch. <laughs> I, I, I'm a company. I call my whole company into a meeting and I say, folks, I love you guys to death. And I'm paraphrasing folks. I love you guys to death. I, I, I'm so happy that we're a team and a fam and I'm sure glad you're all here. Now I've just provided to you this virtual training system that has all of the knowledge to get you better people, better husbands, better wives, better employees, better to our customers and more, you know, and, and promoted. This is how you get paid more. So it's all yours. Go ahead and log in. And it's, and it's 100% my gift to you. Cause I love you and I want you to be better. And I'm sure you want the company to be better. So go ahead, tear it up. Now you walk out of that office. That's all you say. And a week later you press a button. Anyone who didn't partake in that cornucopia of knowledge, right. is somewhat disengaged and perhaps even actively disengaged, 100%. but anybody engaged would take part in that offer. Absolutely. So Absolutely. literally dude, you can, show any company how to identify them in one fail swoop. Right. Hey, look, this makes you better and it makes us stronger. Please take part in it. And then one button later, it tells you who didn't take part in it. Well, those right. are your problems. Those are at least the ones you need to investigate. 100%. 100%. A anytime you, you provide development opportunities to employees, it is a very interesting. I would say the, the, interesting, the most interesting thing about a, a 360 review or an engagement survey is who freaking takes the survey. <laughs> the rest of the people who just ignore it are definitely disengaged because they don't care or they don't believe that anything good is going to come from it because yeah, but, of failed attempts in the past, that kind of thing. Yeah. But Brent, you've heard of like testing things. So like, for example, right. if taking point made a module, put it in your VT system. And literally as people logged in to get this cornucopia of knowledge, you pop up and say, this was a test to see if you were engaged. <laughs> Thank you very much for logging in. There's not really any of this in here. However, <laughs> we did identify that you're one of the good guys. Now, right, if they right. don't log in, they never knew it said that. Right. So at no, the end I'm, of the day, I'm in. I'm in. Well, the end <laughs> of the day is how do we create a mechanism? Because again, if I were a leadership company like yours, I, and, and not, not only that, dude, the size of companies you're dealing with, you go in there and say, look, if I can identify these people in, in one week, what would that be worth to you? They're like, oh, that'd be worth an unbelievable amount of money. Okay, good. We're going to make this offer in one general meeting. And we're going to press a button a week later and they will be identified. Right. Yeah. You don't even have to make the content. You just have to do the test. Yeah. No, you're, you're talking about a very simple, but highly impactful data point. Like you said, just that one data point uh, help, will help, you know, helps leaders and managers identify, you know, what they have to work with. You know, they can run off in all different directions saying we're going to do this or invest in this type of development or this training, but, they don't really know what they're working with or what the foundation is, then they're going to waste a ton of time and money. Or they're, or they're not willing to do anything about it. Cause there's companies yeah. out there that you can tell them that person right there is not your friend in this company. And they, oh, I, I need, I need Jim, you know, Jim's <laughs> been here for five years. If I get rid of Jim, I'm screwed. Right. Yeah. But Jim's walking around here, shitting in people's oatmeal and literally causing problems all around your company. Yeah. But dude, like find me another gym and I'd consider getting rid of them. But if we know, if I got no gym, you know, it's almost like, dude, what's more valuable, a great culture or an right. individual. Oh, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've made the mistake of hanging on to a gym for far too long. Cause he was the subject matter expert or our best analytics person, totally irreplaceable. Well, as we all know, everybody's replaceable. But if those people are creating a toxic environment of the company, one, they're not just creating toxicity and distracting people from what they need to get done to achieve mission success. They're damaging trust because I, Brink Lease, and the leader isn't doing anything about it. So I'm damaging trust by not addressing those people or removing the gems of the world or sometimes even the customer. You got gyms as customers too, who are treating your your team like garbage. Uh, they're sucking all your utilization. Therefore, you're probably not even making money on them. Yet you, they think you think they're the biggest account. I've made that mistake before too. But when you get rid of the gym or you you fire that customer that's damaging the organization, only good things happen. <laughs> More profit comes in. Higher levels of morale soar in the organization. And then occasionally I'll be like, well, why didn't you do that a year ago? But you well, what, if, <laughs> what if you don't have the balls? What if, what if you're one of those people that just feel bad for people? What, what, how, how do you shift your mind into where you think firing them is a good thing? 
Well, that's why they have the term the burden of command. Uh, if you are or de- desire to be a leader of people, sorry, <laughs> there's tough decisions that have to be made. And if you can't make tough decisions, you're not a true leader. It's just, you know, it's not always fun. Uh, but at the end of the day, leadership, you know, successful leadership isn't about doing great things when things are rosy and sales are through the roof and profit is soaring. It's It's the 2020s of the world. It's the tough conversations you have to have, the really, really hard decisions you have to make. Um, obviously, the, the application of that philosophy is easily seen on the literal battlefield. Like where, firing your cousin. Well, yeah, I was going to say the, the battlefield. When, I've, <laughs> when I'm pinned down by enemy fire and I've got three choices and they all suck, and I've got to choose one of them. <laughs> Do we storm the building and clear up towards the enemy shooting at us? Do we run the opposite direction open, uh, you know, through an open field getting shot at, or do we stay put and uh, potentially get killed where we're, where we're here? Now, going back into business, yeah, you you got to fire your cousin sometimes. You got to fire your best friend sometimes. I mean, I've, I've had business partners. Um, my business partner previously, I was never a big proponent of this for the very reasons we already talked about, but he was very much a believer in hiring his buddies. <laughs> Let me tell you how often that worked out. Zero. It worked out zero times. It is fun, uh, though. I mean, you wish you could do that. You wish you could. You wish you could. And it, it, it can be okay, but typically... Only if your buddies are high level people. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. If they're performers and they don't need to be micromanaged, not that we should have to micromanage anybody. If we're going to build a great culture and a great team, you want to bring people in who are going to kick ass for you and who, who believe in what we're doing here. Not just, oh, we went to college together and he needs a job and well, we'll find a spot for him. Well, that has never worked out. We'll find a spot for him <laughs> because clearly there's no identification of what value they're going to bring to the organization. And usually, you know, those situations in my experience never work out. Um, it would be, it would be the, the, the same as putting a breacher in this, in overwatch position. They might do fine, but they're not going to do as good as someone that was designed to be there, trained and designed and prepared to be there. Yeah. Or, or, or get your, your comms guy who's not a seal, but he's a support comms guy for the team and put him in breach of doors or put him up in an overwatch position. He probably could shoot a weapon because he's in the military, but yeah, not going to be your high performer. Who's going to actually take the team to the next level. No, uh, the, the, pro- the problem is we, we always hang on to those people way too long when we well, know in our gut, they've got to, they've got to be removed. Yeah. But a seal team wouldn't. So, so again, if you were running a seal team and you knew your comms guy was that, was that dude in overwatch, you'd stop the mission You'd say, Hey, wait a minute. This is that important. Yeah. Yeah. You would uh, hopefully plan better in the first place. Um, maybe there was a resource allocation issue there and you had to make, you know, one of those three bad choices, but you had to make a choice. Uh, but again, that's why, you know, that's why we live, we learn. And that's why one of the other really, really great takeaways that's a huge accountability mechanism is how we conduct after action reviews or in business, we'd call it a debrief or a postmortem. Uh, a lot of companies and teams say they do it or they think they do it, but they don't know how to do it well. They don't know how to extract really actionable insights. So when you're on the battlefield of business or the literal battlefield and you make one of those three crappy choices, uh, you know, maybe things turn out well, maybe things turn out even worse, uh, but you debrief it, you take the lessons learned and you apply it to training, you apply it to preparation, you make sure you don't keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Um, we teach a lot of our uh, the organizations we work with how to do a proper debrief or after action review, whether it be, you know, at the end of the year or a quarter or the, the finalization of a sale or a project, or it could be something big, something small, but you always got to debrief and debriefing wins too. We always assume we got to debrief the catastrophic loss or the deal that didn't close that we worked on for six months or yada, yada, yada. Well, it's, it's good to debrief the win too. Wow. We crushed it. We exceeded the goal. Uh, we exceeded the profitability target. EBITDA was through the roof when we thought it was going to be okay. It, well, let's talk about that. Why was that the case? What can we learn from the wins just as much as the losses? So if I'm listening to this, I'm like, damn, dude, how do I learn to make tough decisions? What's, is there a technique that you were you, like, again, dude, if there's gunfire over my head, do I freeze? Do I save my daughter from drowning? I mean, these life and death thing, I think everyone always assumes, well, I just do this and that. But when yeah. it's not life and death, like, how do we make these tough decisions? How do you know when to stop the nonsense and fire your cousin? 
Yeah, it, it's a good question. One of the kind of the, the my new book uh, is really about resilience and being intentional and in how you expand your comfort zone. So, you know, one way I could look at that question is uh, one of the chapters is titled to do something that sucks every day, meaning I have specific goals for my personal life. I have specific goals for my career, goals for my relationships. Uh, well, anything worth doing is not only worth overdoing, but anything worthwhile, fulfilling and meaningful in our lives, as you know, is going to have some adversity <laughs> associated with the accomplishment of that goal. There are going to be parts of achieving that goal that make you cringe, that make you uncomfortable. That's why we say in the SEAL teams, you have to learn to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, and, th and that's the intention of comfort zone expansion. And the more you intentionally practice that by doing things that you're not good at or practicing the things about leadership or business that you don't really like, well, the more you do, like you said before, you get better at those things. You get more confident, more comfortable, and then you move the goalposts and you do it again. So I talk in the book about, you know, being better planning, better execution, better debriefing. But when you're planning, just like any good mission plan, obviously you're going to have a clear and concise objective or a smart goal or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you're going to have a list of resources that you have or need to acquire to accomplish that mission. And then the next phase of proper planning is identifying the threats and blockages that stand in your way of achieving that goal of achieving mission success, uh, whether it be in business or the battlefield or in a relationship, whatever they are. And within that list of blockages and threats, there's probably a lot of things that, you know, you don't like about them or that makes you uncomfortable, that makes you cringe, uh, but that are necessary uh, evils for achieving that goal. Uh, for me, for example, you know, I'm a both student and teacher of leadership, uh, but I'm not perfect by any means. Uh, one of the things that, that this interesting, like on the, on the battlefield, I'll run to the sound of gunfire. I'll charge the room, but <laughs> in business and entrepreneurship, I've found over the years, I've gotten better, but that I, I'm not that great at conflict resolution. I don't like having the difficult conversations with the angry customer or the upset employee or the cousin that I know that I need to fire. That shit goes on my to-do list and it goes to the next day, <laughs> then the next day, and then it's next week. And I haven't addressed the issue. And when we don't address issues, uh, that are necessary, uh, obviously they don't get better, do they? They, they just get worse uh, and, and create uh, a cancer that's just a bigger, more uncomfortable problem next time. So in, in light of doing things that suck that are required of me to achieve certain goals in life and work, you know, I have things that I know I'm not good at, but so because I'm not good at them or I don't like them or they make me uncomfortable, I make a point to do them more often uh, than I do the things that, uh, that I do like. Now, if I'm a company listening to this and I got deep pockets, I can call taking point and have you come in and almost train me and my team to install all of these processes and, and, and disciplines into my company, correct? Yes, yes. Usually our engagements with organizations, uh, usually we're, we're a good to great uh, type of you know, consultative partner. Uh, we're not a turnaround company, although we can do that. But typically we go in organizations uh, who are doing pretty well to help them move the needle to uh, improve their, their leadership uh, ability at, at you know, mid and senior levels to identify high performers, you know, the highly engaged people that can move up and have upper mobility in the organization. Um, so and not just leadership. And, but engagement strategies, culture transformation, uh, implementation of better operating models to create more efficiency, you know, all of the things that are paramount in continuing to grow a business or take that uh, business to the next level, sort of that, you know, Marshall Goldsmith's what got you here will get you there philosophy uh, of being in a constant state of development, constant state of uh, continuous improvement. So usually what we come in and do, it's, it's based on a needs analysis, but we're going to come in and customize something. I know everybody says that, but <laughs> we're going to come in and customize a program based on what the organization is trying to accomplish uh, and, and making sure that we could tie all those activities back to um, greater efficiency, employee retention, customer retention, and profitability. Now, out of all the people listening, I'm telling you, there's, you know, surprisingly to me a long time ago, I figured out, you know, I've got people in the bomb squad that are very successful. You know, I've got lawyers, doctors, entrepreneurs, blue collar, uh, white collar. And, you know, that's not going to be cheap if they're listening, if you're listening. And, you know, that's obviously going to cost you some money. There's human beings that walk in there and, and help you uh, turn or not turn around, but go from good to great. But what about like if they're just getting started, they are the startups. Do you, they just buy your book? I mean, well, your VT is coming soon. You can, they can get your VT. 
Yeah, technology is a great way, and I know you know this, but <laughs> technology, the VT, is a great way to very cost-effectively provide at least a certain level of uh, of training and of development. Get them up to speed. And, well, and yeah, get them up to speed, and just as you know, you know, by creating a platform like this, kind of going back to what we talked about before, just the activity of investing in our people, uh, whether it's a large investment or a more cost-effective investment through technology. That act alone improves their morale. It improves their uh, their engagement because they're like the company cares about me. They care about my development. Going back to you know mastery and autonomy, they want to know they're being invested. In. Otherwise, they're going to go somewhere else because <laughs> they want to develop in their career. Most of them, yeah, um, yeah. Well, because I mean, I know there's people listening. It's like if they got the money, dude, you know, and you want to squeeze this freaking ferry to another level of degree, you can afford to do it. But dude, there's more people that are struggling, especially with the COVID they're struggling. They're thinking, well, dude, I'd love to get old Brenton here and get this shit dialed in. But guess what? They don't have, you know, that kind of dough. So I want to leave them with something like the podcast. If you're listening, you, he, you dropped so much bombs that for free, they can make an improvement. You can get the book. If you want to go a little bit deeper, you get the virtual training, which is like having him on demand, you and your staff on demand for you and your staff, but at a fraction of the live. And then if you can afford it and you want it done for you, basically, or with you, you know, yeah. then, then step up and, and, and hire the actual uh, consulting. But to me, dude, you got the whole gamut covered. Anybody else uh, that, that doesn't do something about it, I think is ultimately just making excuses to where they can actually fulfill their idea of failure. Meaning their mindset <laughs> is something's not going to, have you ever met the people that like, they're just self-saboteurs? <laughs> no, I just, I just made a mental note of where you're saying fulfilling their idea of failure. Uh, that was great because yes, I mean, there's people out there who are, it's just a constant cycle of self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I actually talk about the, the eight failure realities in, in my new book. Um, so it's interesting you mentioned that. Well, dude, I'm going to go order your new book. I suggest everybody else do too. But listen, I'm a realist. I know there's people listening that are going to reach out to you and you're going to get business to help them with their organization just based on what you've said and, and what's available. But not everyone can afford that. Right. So I'm like thinking, well, how do people get out of their own way? And then I made the comment because there's a lot of people that, dude, you're not going to get out of your own way because you're, you're, you're literally causing your own fa failure. There's self-saboteurs. And I don't know how to help people that can't help themselves. Have you discovered that yet? <laughs> Just have them watch David Goggins' videos on Instagram. <laughs> no, I mentioned, I mentioned David because uh, he wrote the foreword for my new book. That's kind of a, a real gut punch to, to kick off a philosophy around comfort zone expansion. Um, well, dude, sure Go Goggins' message in a nutshell, I'm paraphrasing, basically is quit being a fucking pussy and just do it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's more complex for most people out there. But, so do I. Um, but, uh, like, but dude, I could yeah. never, I could never teach leadership. Like in my mind, I'm thinking, Oh, I'm, I don't teach leadership. I can teach sales. Leadership goes way beyond that alone in and of itself. That negative self thought is what stops people from, from, from doing shit. Right now. Now, when you go into the freaking Navy seals, dude, they either beat that out of you or you make the decision because of your, of your passion, et cetera. But what if you're just a normal Joe Brent? Like what could I do tomorrow? What kind of tactical shit can I do tomorrow? for the next 30 days and which will, which will maybe get me to the level where, Hey, you know what? Maybe I can do some shit. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause it made me think about, you know, one of the videos I show that came from a discovery channel documentary uh, in a lot of my keynote presentations. And you hear the instructor saying to the student, uh, the, the bud student who's wet and sandy and miserable. He's like, winning here is a conscious decision. You know, we forget that winning in life or winning in business in large part, I know it's obviously more complex than that, but in large part is, is a decision uh, pushing uh, the, you know, when I made the, the obvious transition from financial analyst to SEAL, <laughs> obviously to achieve a lofty goal, and this is segueing into answering your question, you know, I had to have a plan, a real plan. I mean, it, it, SEAL training can have upwards of a 90% failure rate. Those aren't good odds. And when you fail, you're just, you're not going home. You're not going back to your old job. You're stuck in the Navy. You will be down a different path than you wanted, uh, which is why obviously planning and preparation are so critically important. Uh, but if somebody wants to just go out there and, and you know, start the transformation process uh, of their lives, I, I mean, I think really it's, first it starts with 
changing the narrative in our minds about what true adversity is, what the things we aren't really all that good at, you know, why we can't have meaningful relationships, why we can't close enough sales at the job that we kind of like, <laughs> you know, why have two startups failed and, and they seemed, it seems that I'm not really developing as, a, as an entrepreneur. Uh, it's because we're not paying attention and we're not building better plans. We're not taking stock of the successes and failures the after action review process, so to speak, applying lessons learned and being in a constant state of improvement. Uh, and that requires constant learning, constant reading, listening to podcasts like yours uh, and, and thinking uh, with personal development in mind, never being satisfied with the status quo. You know, I, I kind of joke in the book that, you know, is anybody would anybody ever tell themselves they're satisfied with mediocrity? Uh, the answer actually is yes. <laughs> Some people would say that they're satisfied with mediocrity. Um, I don't think they would really believe it. I think they would be uh, fooling themselves. But, you know, the simplest way, the next 30 days, you want to transform your life or achieve a specific goal or, again, do something that sucks, that makes you uncomfortable, that you have to get better at to develop, develop a plan. Develop a concise, clear objective that you can emotionally connect to that gets you excited. You know, I always use fitness as a, as a, cause it's such an easy, tangible way to look at having a better plan. Well, you've been talking about running that damn marathon for five years now. Well, how come you haven't fucking done it? <laughs> you know, you've been talking about getting out of this horribly damaging relationship for two years now. How come you haven't done it? Because you fear change and you fear the pain and suffering that will come from getting out of the relationship or pushing your mind and body harder than you ever have to run that marathon or that ultra marathon or whatever it is. You want to do that goal, but you're not willing to accept the pain and adversity that will come with it. Um, but the more you do and have a better plan, uh, you know, I, that's what I say in the book is like embracing the suck is a lot easier when you have a solid plan. <laughs> you know what resources you need to accomplish the goal. You know what stands in your way. You have lessons learned from life that you could apply to that plan. You red team that plan, have a mentor, a coach, someone like you look at the plan and be like, have you thought of this? Have you thought of this? Poke holes in it develop contingencies, and then violently execute. You know, I, I know we're coming up on the end of the year. And one of the things I always say is like, New Year's resolutions are for losers. It's about lifestyle choices, about making lifestyle changes. Now, oh, end of the year, it's January 1st. I'm going to do some new, new stuff. What, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> it makes no sense to me. It's about constantly evolving your life. And when people do that, you know, the fear dissipates. Uh, they have a life of meaning. Know, of maybe even giving back more of themselves to causes greater than themselves. And they're happier. They're just generally happier because they've embraced the fear. They've, they've gotten more comfortable being uncomfortable. And I would imagine that book coming up, which everyone should go pre-order right now on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Uh, Embrace the suck is literally probably going to, you know, help you figure out how to find something uncomfortable, get good at being uncomfortable or embracing the suck. And that's literally one of the key things to, I think, success in any, in any area, yep. discipline and discipline sucks. Sometimes that's the suck. It's discipline. It's the pain. It's the, I don't want to. Right. Well, so what? <laughs> do it anyway. <laughs> do it anyway. Like you make a decision when it boils down to it. You make a decision. I'm going to get this no matter what. Okay. Well, now you'll go, th you'll, you'll, you'll graduate a Navy SEAL when you have that attitude. Yeah. Now, Brent, if you were like, what's your days look like? If you had a billion dollars cash right now, what would your normal day look like? Yeah, if, if I had a billion dollars in the bank, I don't think my day would uh, would look any different. Uh, and I think a lot of people uh, that, that have- What's your day look like then? A certain level of discipline, uh, you know, up early. Uh, usually, well, we have little ones too and a baby on the way. So <laughs> sleep is a low priority in the Gleason household. Um, so we have a, I don't know if I told you that, we got a, a new one coming in a couple of weeks. Wow, so we figured We figured 2020 wasn't chaotic enough. So let's have another human. <laughs> So but you no, get it, up it's, early. It's, it's yeah, and, and this is and this isn't you know this is things I've learned over the years and things I've learned from others and, and from mentors is you know the the people who achieve more of the goals they set and have you know fulfilling lives and relationships have a very similar routine every single day and that routine's not different on the weekend. They get up early. They have good sleep habits. They eat clean. They engage in wellness and fitness activities both for their body and for their mind, uh, and they freaking work hard, uh, but not at the expense of other meaningful things in their lives, such as their relationships or their children. Um, you know, we always, you know, talk about 
people get that wrong. They know we got to be disciplined. We got to do this, this, and this. Well, what, at, what, at what expense are you applying all that discipline to? There's got to be balance uh, as well. So it's you know it's up early, clean, healthy. Never skip a day of some type of fitness or wellness activity. Uh, you know, drink less, <laughs> love more, <laughs> and uh, and work hard. And people who do that are, are, in my experience, just more fulfilled in general. But but, but if you have a billion dollars. Like, would you golf? Would you do, you wouldn't do anything different. You wouldn't have a yacht sitting off the coast that you could just pop onto. No, 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 no. I, I, I would be doing all these things on my yacht, Brad. <laughs> I, right, so, I, would, I would be remiss to say that I would not indulge a little bit in, uh, you know, the pursuit of certain things. Uh, right. So let a, me, so let me I am ask a boat you. guy, by the way. So I would probably get a bigger boat. <laughs> yeah. So, so you'd get a bigger boat. So now let me ask the question again. If you had a billion dollars cash <laughs> in the bank, you were, you didn't have to do anything. Everything was taken care of. You have a billion in the bank. What would your day look like? My day would not be all that different. Uh, you know, I would, yes, I would, I would obviously invest in uh, things that not just continue to develop that wealth, but obviously that make me happy. Um, and, and <laughs> continue as, to develop a, a billion. <laughs> yeah i mean Dude, when listen, is it ever once, enough, once you get when to a billion <laughs> well once you get to a billion man you can begin to waste that's true that's a good point see that's why that's people say brad why do you want to be a billionaire so bad i'm like dude i want to be a billionaire so i can waste money helping other people to where I don't have to yeah. be concerned yeah. with my own cup because it overfloweth. And so like my day, if I had a billion dollars cash would be consistent of getting up early. I agree with you. I'd go golf or something luxurious. I'd probably get a massage every day. I might even have a masseuse follow me around, <laughs> um, you know, but, but literally throughout the day, I would go and find people to freaking shock with some sort of lottery type life-changing yeah, yeah. moment now imagine dude you could literally walk into them all find the right people give them a million dollars cash have it on film put it on instagram <laughs> everybody in the world would follow would know who you are because you're the dude walking around giving out billions like dude if i were elon musk dude i'd just start dropping millions on people well in all seriousness that that's one of the things that i always uh not to piggyback off that comment but i'm gonna piggyback off it anyway uh one of the things that i always said was one of my 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 whys uh behind getting into entrepreneurship so having a, a more direct control over my you know my businesses my you know personal wealth company wealth that kind of thing is to have the means to give back we can give our time it's important to give our money to people say oh you got to give your time well no, you just get your freaking money as well. Especially um, if you have a shitload of it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like I'm on the board of the SEAL Family Foundation. I, I have been for, we, we, you know, it's a family resilience uh, uh, nonprofit for Naval Special Warfare. Obviously support the families of our active and fallen operators. Um, but it's not just about being on the board. People like to say they're on a board of this or they do this charity. It's more of a social thing or a status thing. But no, you got to give your money too. And you can't give your money if you don't have any of it. <laughs> so, Amen. So I love what you said. Well, listen, I know I only asked for an hour and it's been over an hour, so I appreciate it. Folks, if you guys want to learn from this gentleman, follow him on Instagram at Brent underscore Gleason. That's G-L-E-E-S-O-N. You can go to takingpoint.com. You can go to uh, Brent, the, or no, I'm sorry, what is the speaking one if they want to book you? Brent Gleason speaker.com if you want to, you know, book him for an event and or a, a, a workshop like how much like how many people do you think brent uh uh realize the value of actually bringing a company in and helping them what's the value real quick what's the value yeah, yeah. Of, of of employing a coach or someone else it, we call these and this isn't to sound salesy but we call these and the executives and organizations who believe in these types of things and developing their people these are revenue and profit generating activities uh, and the organizations that get it and that grow that have and, and that do great things in the world uh invest significant time and resources into their culture into their people and developing those people uh the ones that don't are not as big and typically not as profitable now isn't that crazy and that's where I was driving. Like the most successful companies are the ones paying you money to come in and help them get to the next level. Companies like that are sitting there thinking, well, I don't need Brent Gleason to come in here and show me <laughs> shit. 
nine times out of 10, those are the companies that stay small. How important is it that you guys start realizing maybe if you knew how to do it, you'd already be a big company. And if you're not a big company and you want to be one, then, then figure out who to, who to get you to help. And maybe not Brent Gleason and his squad, but let me tell you something, get help somewhere, son. Coaching (laughs) is massively important for one reason. A coach is going to get, push you farther than you can push yourself. That's a fact. Always. That's a fact. So Brent, I appreciate you uh, coming on board, man. Appreciate you big time. Thank you, brother. It's been too long. Uh, I got to get out to Vegas and uh, we got to get that BT up and running. So I'll give you a call. Dude, whenever you're ready on that. Listen, thank you for your service. Thank everyone listening that's given their time and effort into our armed forces for their service and share this out because somebody needs to hear this today. Share it out. Till next time, keep it real. Dropping Bombs with The Real Bradley. Subscribe at DroppingBombs.com.